It's not easy to craft a new world with new characters and an original story that's captivating and guaranteed to thrill audiences everywhere. But the next best thing is to borrow different parts of better movies, Franken-film them together, and hope that the end result is different enough, palatable, and guaranteed to thrill some audiences. But despite all that, we're here to prove to you that Battle Beyond the Stars is not that bad. Welcome, welcome, one and all, to It's Not That Bad, the podcast that looks for A grades in B movies. And I think perhaps for the first time ever, we might actually be talking technically speaking about a B movie because we are talking about a Roger Corman production in that we're talking about Battle Beyond the Stars. And here, bringing the goods as always, is the one and only Sean Faust. Sean, welcome back to the show, man. How you doing? Dude, what a loaded question. I watched Battle Beyond the Stars today. How do you think I'm doing? I'm, I'm going to say good. I'm going to say good. It's not that bad. <laughs> Which, for the record, by the way, happy 2024 to you. I will say, um, I will try my best Eddie Murphy impression, say, Merry New Year! <laughs> close enough. I, th- I think that's close enough. By the way, it should be noted, because uh, I had to take a look at our uh, at the Spotify, you know, the, the whole Spotify wrapped for the podcast. Did you know, Sean, did you know that the most listened to episodes of It's Not That Bad and there can only be one for the entire 2023 calendar year. We're both with you on the show. Get out. Be- I have a theory about why. Uh, okay, so let, let, let me explain. The Dream Theater episode of There Can Only Be One is the most listened to episode of that podcast. And of this show, the most listened to episode of 2023 was the Tron Legacy episode are you kidding me i am not surprised because tron legacy is an absolute killer film well my theory's out the window now well what what was your theory what were you thinking i'm sean faust (laughs) okay well that's enough that that's all that we need that's all that we need at all uh so battle beyond the stars this was kind of like i was not expecting this film to be pitched when you when you tossed it at me here what is it about this film that made you want to talk about it it is, uh, it's the beginning of a lot of things for me, but also for a lot of people. Like, um, I think it's how one Mr. James Cameron met a James Horner and also helping to build the set, who is not listed in the credits, is a, a young man named Bill Paxton, who these three went on to do some of my favorite things ever. Well, not ever for two of them, but Horner is one of my favorite uh, film composers and just I don't know I think I was thinking of Nell one night or I was watching V I was watching the episode of V with uh, I can't remember her name now but she's Valkyrie Sybil Danning and uh, I think I just tossed it at you because it's just one of those movies with a perfect score as in film score musically I will say but we are going to have some fun with this one. But before we do, before we go down or at least into the stars, the battle beyond the stars, it's time to take this movie and trailerize it. Take a pinch of George Lucas, a tablespoon of Akira Kurosawa, 
and a dash of Battlestar Galactica, and have it cooked by Roger Corman. The end result may not be appetizing, but you'll eat what you're served and you will like it. Battle Beyond the Stars brings you everything you expected and more. For better or worse, Richard Thomas stars at Shad, a simple farmer who must go to the far reaches of space to gather a force and save his world from Sador and his world-destroying empire. On the way, he'll find an outlaw with a bounty on his head, a beautiful warrior princess, and others while he tries to follow the teachings of the Varda and... Okay, it's Star Wars. They made a Kirkland brand Star Wars. It's basically GoBots to the Transformers. Shut the bargain bin, get a bargain. It's Battle Beyond the Stars. Rated PG for pirating the goods. <laughs> yeah, I, I, the I bargain could, bin. I could, fucking awesome. I could not. I could not put the GoBots reference in there. Like this is. It felt uh, like the GoBots version of Star Wars. Oh, hey, now, now don't go saying that. GoBots are like the Kmart Transformers. Or Zellers if you're in Canada. Exactly. The thing is, and, and I can't really say anything because I had a GoBot growing up. Just one. Just one. But I knew damn well he was a GoBot. You know. I had the ship that was also their like, base. I had that. Uh, I, had a, I had GoBots and Transformers. Which I still, I, I'm not going to lie, I, I chuckled so loudly when I watched the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special and when they were at Man's Chinese Theater and everyone was all dressed up and whatnot, there's someone dressed up as Psykill from the GoBots. And I'm like, oh dear God, Go, the GoBots are there. And rightfully getting pummeled by Drax. GoBots. <laughs> when are we going to get the GoBots movie? I don't, oh, we did. We did, sadly. Yeah we, yeah, we did. We did. And it's probably eligible for this show but i you're gonna make me look that up aren't you no no don't do that to yourself because you still have the gi joe movie all of them oh, i was about to say all of them i think but yeah no like i'm i'm well also too when you think about it there's also most of the transformers movies qualify as well and since you asked but you didn't but i'm gonna tell you anyways GoBots battle of the rock lords has a 20 percent score on Rotten Tomatoes. So one day, somewhere down the road, we can watch GoBots Battle of the Rock Lords. Not it. Not it. Not it. <laughs> Not it. Not it. Wait, you don't want to watch the GoBots? Uh, no, I mean, I saw it. Not it. Not it. It's not the 1986 Transformers the movie. No. It's, it's far from it. Far from it. At least the G.I. Joe animated movie had like Don Johnson and Sergeant Slaughter. Yeah, but it wasn't good. It was awful. Because it also had like Cobra, la 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 la. And then that stupid like crashing through the sky comes that fearful cry, Cobra. Cobra! I don't know why I remember. Yeah, exactly. Why do we remember this? <laughs> Be- awful. Because awful. it's stuck awful. in our head. But by-, by the way, and I know you came on the show to talk about ba- you know, Battle Beyond the Stars. I did. But we're talking GoBots here for a second here. Listen to this cast for GoBots Battle of the Rock Lords. We've completely tangented here, but we'll get back on track. Don't worry. Roddy McDowell, 
Telly yeah, Savalas, Margot Kidder in GoBots Crazy. Battle of the Rock Lords. Did Margot Kidder know she was there at the time? Uh, I'm sure someone probably told her it was Transformers and lied. Yeah, because I don't think that's something she would have taken after the masterpiece that was Superman for the quest for peace. Oi! Well, no, not after that one. Not after that one. That's a masterpiece. Especially, no, not the people. <laughs> oh, I've had we we had remember we had to watch that for a grading on a curve, and yeah, just just no, just no. But let's get back to Battle Beyond the Stars before we start really destroy Superman. <laughs> oh dear God, Mark Pillow, the Nuclear Man, which. There is a TV series out there where he's like the Alaska kid or something like that. And I'm sure someday I'm going to find that series and watch it just to, just, just to see, just to see. Sometimes you have to know, you just gotta know. It's, it's the shiny red button theory. If there's a shiny red button, you want to push it no matter how many signs around the button says, you probably don't want to push this button. That's about right. Mm-hmm. But let's get back to Battle Beyond the Stars. This film stars Richard Thomas, George Papard, Robert Vaughn, John Saxon, Darlene Flugel. And I apologize if I messed up that name. I think remember, it's Flugel. I think Flugel, quite I possibly. So. But remember, me, idiot, basement microphone. Sybil Danning, Sam Jaffe, and Lynn Carlin as the voice of Nell. The movie was directed by Jimmy T. Murakami. And... Whenever I take a look at the filmography of a name that I'm not quite familiar with, I'm always looking for something that I recognize. And there's a few things on here, and they're mostly all in animation. He was the director of the soft landing segment of the wonderful heavy metal movie. He was also the director of When the Wind Blows. And I remember watching that animated film and being like, completely traumatized by it never saw it but i have the soundtrack and i know you know why Mm-hmm. but also it needs to be pointed out not a film not a film but he was the director of the tootsie pop how many licks commercial get out yep that's oh the guy who made battle beyond the stars oh my god uh can i also just this is your show, I know, I know, but you, you forgot Earl Bowen. Earl Bowen is in this movie too. Well, I can't, I can't remember everybody. That's fair, that's fair. But you know, it, when it's the psychiatrist from the Terminator series, we can, we can toss him in. We can toss him in. He doesn't do anything special. Now, you mentioned a couple of names that aren't in the cast, and it should be noted, yes, Bill Paxton was a carpenter on the film. James Cameron was a model maker and eventually the art director when the act, the original art director was fired and they are like, hey, do you want to do this job? And he said, yeah, sure. Yes, it was scored by James Horner. But also, working on this film behind the scenes as an assistant production manager was future producer of Terminator Gail Ann Hurd. This Minus is actually the, the film. This is true. This was just Gail Hurd at that time. Yeah. This is where James Cameron and Gail Ann Hurd met. So, this if this film didn't exist, we don't get Terminator. That's not the only reason I love this film, but it's a good reason to love this film. Now, also too, if you're taking a look at you know people in the crowd, take a look at 
the opening scene when when Sador brings his ship to Akir, one of the extras is Kathy Griffin. Yep, this is correct. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like there's a lot of people behind the scenes and and, and faces that maybe you might not recognize at the time that went on to do some really big things all of this on a two million dollar budget so kudos to just dogged determination to get this thing done and it didn't go unnoticed at the 1981 saturn awards the movie was nominated for best sci-fi film it lost to the empire strikes back it was also nominated for best costume lost to somewhere in time it was nominated for Best Makeup and lost to both Altered States and Scanners who tied for the award, and nominated for Best Special Effects it lost to The Empire Strikes Back. However, winning the Golden Scroll of Merit for Outstanding Achievement at that Saturn Awards was Sybil Danning. But the reason why we are here, and not just because it's a good film, and not just because Sean mentioned it, and not just because we can talk about James Cameron, and GoBots. But it's because of the critic score. Over at Metacritic, this film has a meta score of 59, and over at Rotten Tomatoes, the Tomatometer is 50%, and the audience score is only 42%. This one surprises me because this is the kind of film that seems to have a very core type of audience, and yet the critics liked it more. So what is it that the audience isn't picking up? Some of the pacing can get weird in this movie, but overall, the audience is just wrong. I remember this movie was huge when it came out. It was a really big, big deal. It was Roger Corman's Star Wars. Starlog magazine always had like updates on the production. When it finally came out, there was stuff about it. I don't know. Maybe they weren't as young as I was when it came out that it could be that maybe they were past that age or maybe they didn't see it until later and they were like eh or you know maybe they just watched Ozark and they loved Richard Thomas's performance in that so much that they went and checked out his earlier stuff and nothing's gonna top his performance in Ozark there, there's a million reasons why I mean it's, it's kind of a bold move to put in a movie that that you know you could easily say borrows from the Star Wars mythos and put it out in the same year that the sequel to Star Wars comes out. You know, that, that's got some Roger Corman-sized balls on that one. But let's get to the breakdown of this film and find out why the critics are actually more right than the audience in this one. And of course, we start with Richard Thomas as Shad. How was he for you in this? Was Fun. he Ozark good? He was not Ozark good. He, he's never been that good. I remember Ozark going, who is this guy? And I looked him up and I was like, no, 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 no. And I got all Palpatine because <laughs> uh, I just couldn't believe it because I did not like his performance at all in It. I know I'm in the minority there. I don't like the TV version of It aside from a couple things like Tim Curry. Um, but in this, he's fun. He's, uh, um, he's perfectly adequate. He does a good job. He doesn't overdo it. His comic timing is really, really good in it because it's not overdone and it's not in your face. It's just there and it's right. That's the thing. Like when he's conversing with Nell, the ship computer, um, there is still a naivety to him because the ship is somehow more world, you know, 
more worldly than he is. And that, you know, newness to the adventuring aspect of what he's doing really comes across. Like, does he have a discount Luke Skywalker vibe to him? Absolutely at this point. And I don't think it's unintentional. But I think in this case, the fact that he is, you know, completely out of his element in having to do this and go out and find all these people to help save Akir, it works for this. But let's move on to Darlin Flugel, who plays Nanelia. Now, this is the girl that was on the spaceship and 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 basically Shad was told that, no, 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 you're going to stay here and you're going to marry Nanelia and and you're going to like continue the bloodline like it's some weird Game of Thrones you aspect You make it this. sound like very clean and pure and uh, it's, <laughs> it, it, he wasn't meant to marry her at all. Like nope. he's pretty much like, no, no, I want to hear, like when he's talking to, uh, when her father's talking to the other android, he's like, you know, how prepare the conjugal bed and it's like, whoa, God. <laughs> and like, what's even creepier about that though is when he introduces himself to Shad, he says, I'm everywhere, so you're always in my presence and I can hear everything you do. Dude, this is gross. Mm. The interesting thing though is that with Dr. Hephaestus being so at, at least omnipotent on the ship, it makes for a very, you know, domineering presence and it makes you question if Danelia is going along because she knows that she's being monitored because she knows that her father is connected to every single sensor in the ship so maybe her leaving the ship is actually a way for her to escape the domineering presence of her father and as I'm talking about this now it actually makes a lot more sense but I actually liked her in this and there were some some very fun awkward moments between her and shad because if she if her entire life experience is on this ship and it's just her and her father and all these androids she's not going to know much about anything and shad doesn't know much of anything off of akir because this is the first time he's ever left the planet i need to point out a hole though she just gets off of her father's ship really easily there is no questioning why does she have her own ship like, her father is very domineering. That's a very good question. It would be one thing if she stowed away on Shad's no. ship. Yeah. But, no, she had her own ship. She she w was seemingly free to go at any time. And we don't really see anything of what happened to Dr. Hephaestus afterwards. Like, does Nanelia's leaving change Dr. Hephaestus at all? Like, there are... and and this needs to be said you know because it's not really a long film but there's a lot of different storylines that could have been flushed out and i'm going to sit there and say once again occasionally a series is the best way to go they had a very big world that they had built with this story that some of these characters needed a little bit of flushing out and i think the 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 Nanelia situation could have been flushed a bit more, but then the, it felt like they were speed running to get to the action. Yeah. Which, it's a Roger Corman film. They're not exactly subtle. It's the Yojimbo 7. Wait. <laughs> yeah. But since we're talking about Dr. Hephaestus, as played by Sam Jaffe, this it's a fascinating role. Admittedly, it feels a little Doctor Who-ish, but I like it. 
course, I'm also a Doctor Who fan, so maybe maybe that's why I'm you know intrigued by you know the Hephaestus ship and the the world that he inhabits and and controls. But how was Sam Jaffe for you? He was he was fine. He didn't he just doesn't stand out as anything other than like creepy, and it, it's kind of like. Um, it's Dumont from Tron, just before Dumont from Tron, and not as not as bitter yet. <laughs> it's like <laughs> Dumont before he got bitter, but he he's just it's just that whole thing about like no, you're not going anywhere. You're gonna stay here, and you're gonna you're gonna mate with my daughter. She has no say in this. It's just it's creepy, but it's just for its time. It was. I don't know. He's fine though. He he does an all right job. I I will say though that his life support unit is about a plunger away from being a Dalek. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> all right, it's time to get to the A team of this team here, and that's George Papard who plays, and this is his actual character name, Space Cowboy. But but George Papard, how was he for you? This is my introduction to George Papard. A-Team has not happened yet. I have not seen the Westerns that he's been in. So this is it. And, you know, I'm a kid of five years old, and at four years old, I was introduced to something that I would be obsessed with for the rest of my life. So towards the end of the movie, when he just takes his scotch without the, <laughs> the soda and ice, he says, remember the Alamo. And I was like, <laughs> so I liked him, like, the first time I saw that movie, when he said that, I'm like a five-year-old kid, like, <gasps> Wait, what? He knows about the Alamo? That's awesome. Um, I I think he's he's just right. He just he seems to like just he doesn't ham it up too much. He's he's the '70s version of a cow, of a space cowboy. He's getting stoned constantly, smoking cigarettes, drunk always. It's great. Yeah, I I need that drink dispenser belt. That needs to happen. The funny thing is, though, as I'm watching this, and obviously the minute I find out his character's name is Space Cowboy, I, I'm getting Cowboy Bebop references in my head. But the interesting thing here is when you take a look at Spike Spiegel and just how aloof his character is, I wonder if there were aspects of George Papard's portrayal in this and you know, kind of used as inspiration for the Spike Spiegel character in Cowboy Bebop. The thing is, though, Papard's likable in this. Like, he really is. He's just likable. And and this is really, when you think about it, his entire character development is him going around going, hey, I'm from Earth. Like, that's it. (laughs) Hey, I'm from Earth. Who are you? What do you do? Uh, I'm eating a hot dog. Where where did he get the hot dogs? I want to know where where he got the hot dogs. But yeah, everything is just like, hey, my name is Space Cowboy and I'm from Earth. Have you heard of it? Have you heard of Earth? Hey, how about you? <laughs> Have you heard of Earth? I'm surprised that like, you know, when he starts talking to Sador, he doesn't say like, it's like Sador, you son of a bitch. No, you should be like, it's Space. Oh, he does say it. It's Space Cowboy from the planet Earth. Never mind. But he doesn't ask him <laughs> if he's ever heard of it. Yeah, no. And, and the thing is like, what is he expecting? You know, I'm Space Cowboy from Earth. It's like, are you waiting for someone to say, oh, hey, me too? Because that's not happening in this film. No. He's like the one dude from Earth. It's like they needed to have some connection to the audience, and George Papard is it. Well, I mean, we as human beings are very full of ourselves, so there you go. <laughs> we always think the aliens are visiting us, right? Think about that. And now that. he's visiting the aliens. And now he, well, you know, now he's the alien. 
Te- technically speaking, yes. Oh my God, that could be a good concept for a song. <laughs> oh, Get we already guitar. did that episode. <laughs> All right, Robert Vaughn as Gelt. Really, like, I did not expect Robert Vaughn in this, but how was he for you? Robert Vaughn plays the exact same character in this that he does in The Magnificent Seven. Um, And sometimes I don't know if it's performance or if he's just really that bored. Because there's moments he's just sitting there like, there's the one scene where he's got like his hands over his eyes and he just opens up his fingers. Um, But yeah, he's he pretty much plays that same role. I believe I could be wrong, but uh, I he was. I thought all of his line deliveries were just so stone cold and just right. Let, let, let me rant a little bit here because I I get that Chad's new to this whole like going out and finding people and mercenaries in order to be able to protect his world. It's not something that he has to do on a regular basis. I get it. I understand it, but. Gelt seems to me to be the finally the first person that actually seems like appropriate to save his planet from from Sador. Everyone's like space cowboy. Sure, he's got a lot of arms, and yeah, he'll he'll be able to teach the the Akir how to um to use them. That's fine. But Gelt, aside aside from Saint Xman. Gelt is the only one who seems like a proper Stone Cold killer. And I like that. This is the kind of character that Chad should have found. You know, not Ninelia, maybe not Space Cowboy, Gelt. Get yeah. get you some Gelt and that's going to, to do the job. And the nice thing too is that his motives made sense, right? The, the Akira are not going to be able to pay for the weapons because they don't deal with money. The Nelia, well, she. Well, the weapons are already paid for anyway. Sorry to interrupt, but the, very, uh, again, yeah, very yeah, true. Yes, because yeah. the planet was destroyed that he was yeah. supposed to deliver them to. So, Ooh, okay Mateo. then. But the thing is, Gelt's motives make sense. He's not doing it out of altruism. He's doing it because he wants a world where he doesn't have to, you know, constantly watch his back. So, his the reason he's there makes sense, and that makes his death. That much more meaningful because he was there. He was so close to finally having a normal life only to have it taken away from him in the end. So I, I think Robert, you know, Gelt had the best character development, I think, in this short film. I agree. Sybil Danning as St. X-Men. Um, it's a 1980 Roger Corman production, so she's going to look exactly how she looks in this. But how was she for you? Fun. Fun. Every almost everything she says is uh, double entendre. Actually, no. Like she has the one double entendre, which is uh, you've never seen a Valkyrie go down. But there's that one scene where she's like talking about what she wants to do with Shad, and Anelia has no idea what she's talking about. And she's like, "Stick with me, kid. I'll show you the ropes." Like she's just fun. She, her her culture is about you know live fast, fight well, have a beautiful ending. It's all about fighting. Like, even the play fight that she has with uh, Shad and Nell. It's just, hey, that was fun. And she's like, she thanks them for it. And even Sador, she thanks them for the fight. Hey, it was a wonderful fight. The interesting, too, is that because her race is very war above all kind of thing, right? War is fun. Fighting is is enjoyment. 
it makes for a very good counterbalance with Shad because, you know, by following the teachings of the Varda, right, it's it's not, they're not supposed to be fighters. They're not just supposed to seek the fight. Um, so St. X-Men is, is a good counter to Shad. And again, someone who makes sense to bring along for the fight, even though he does it kind of begrudgingly because he's kind of annoyed with her until, you know, the computer tells him, well, you might want to because she's actually exactly who you need. I will, I will give Sybil Danning all credit, though, for somehow staying in her costume. Like, there were apparently, like, band-aids and whatnot that were used in order to hold this thing in place, and that tells you exactly how she was looking in this film. Well, that's why, if you notice her intro scene, she's not wearing the midriff. It's just the top and bottom. So when they get to Akir, now she's got, like, a. it looks like a full dress. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, she was uh, falling out of it. I, I will say too, like, there's a lot of sitting down in spaceships in this film. Yeah, yeah, that, and, like and, a lot of, and hers seems to be the most awkward sitting position for anyone, and that's probably to hold the costume in place. I would agree, or just that's where the TV screen is. So, because everybody's just like lean back, lean back, lean back, and they're just holding their whatevers like it, it's isn't it weird that space cowboy is the only one who's like controls are different uh, I, I mean as it's uh, as opposed to gelt and um nell yeah well i mean saint x-men and gelt they're both very lean back like space cowboy he's like yeah i'm just gonna lean forward here have a sip of my drink and hopefully not die smoke a cigarette yeah not gonna very- fight yeah, very much the the lounge area of the uh, of the spaceships here. Jeff Corey, who played Zed, the blind Akiran. So this, if we're drawing our our Star Wars references, here's your Obi Wan for uh, for this movie. Yeah, how was Zed for you? He was hardly in it to really make a difference. He he was like old man exposition. <laughs> Just pretty much like, oh, I fought wars and you don't know anything about war and it's because of me. And uh, you you get the vibe that um, Nell and he had a, like a really long history of fighting together considering his age. Mm-hmm. That, But he's not in it enough. So like when his final scene happens, I'm just like, oh yeah, that guy's back in this movie. All right. That's this was a missed opportunity. I get you're not going to have the time to tell everyone's backstory and and let us know who everyone really is. This was the one character that needed a little extra on-screen time. Like before Sador shows up and before he initially gives uh the Akirans uh, a warning that he's going to come back and he's going to take over the planet or you're all going to die. Maybe we have a scene or two where Shad and Zed, or Shad is asking Zed about his exploits. He's he's curious in that very, and again, Star Wars reference, in that very Luke Skywalker way, right? Asking about, you know, the battle between the, the Rebellion and the Empire. Asking about uh, what it's like out there on different worlds. Shad should be curious. Shad should be the kind of spirit that wants to see the stars and Zed having been there and done that obviously would be the kind of for lack of a better term you know storyteller the the source of appeasing that wonderment so when the time comes that's no no we have to go and get these people it should be Zed 
who you know tells Shad exactly who to go see, which is why Shad would know exactly where to go. I mean, I'm sure Nell is probably the one kind of. Well, Nell also seems to know Shad anyway. Yeah, but that's the thing. We don't have that backstory as well. The Zed Shad relationship needed to be flushed out a bit more and then everyone everything else would have made a lot more sense and i I think that jeff corey did a good job in being a little bit more world weary than the rest of the council i just wish we had more of that mentor relationship but you also said see the stars so for brian i have to say ss itari is mixed up and blind (laughs) Uh, it's midnight madness starts to get to you doesn't matter what you say doesn't matter what you do you've got to play (laughs) right now people are going skip skip they're like enough 1980 oh wait this movie's 1980 this movie is 1980 oh man morgan woodward who played cayman the the lizard guy that had actually captured denelia and then realized that she was going to go fight sador and he already has his his beef with him um this didn't trigger a star wars reference for me but more so two two roles i wanted to bring up when the minute i saw cayman the first one was lewis gossett jr's role in enemy mine the other one was dan o'herlihy who played greg in the last starfighter and that's the one i think that that really kind of clicked in for me because a last starfighter freaking love that film oh hell yeah love that film cayman reminds me a little bit of greg even though last starfighter came out later he's a little more flamboyant where greg is just all about like let's go out there and kill and he's like oh it's gonna be a great time when i sell you off like he's (laughs) but here's the thing man Think about this. When you first see his ship and then you see him, it's got to be, I'm sure it is, his ship and him are the inspiration for the look of Ceres and Ceres's ship in Galaxy Quest. I never really thought about that. But now it makes sense. It makes total, utter sense. It, his ship looks like Ceres's ship. Just not as, you know, budgety. And he's got somewhat of a Ceres look, except two eyes. But he also does have that, you big, ugly head from Enemy Mine. <laughs> oh, man, oh, man. Like, so many... I'm, I'm sure the people who made those later films probably knew about this film and probably had watched it. Because, let's be honest, there's a lot of good production value on this film. Oh, Absolutely. You know, say what you will about the script and and the need to flush out a few things. There is so much good production value in this film, like way more than it probably deserves. And it made fun of, it made fun of Star Wars before Spaceballs did, when the hammerhead comes on screen for the first time. Oh yeah, it's it, it's it's before Spaceball one, so and it's and it's longer than the um, the Star Destroyer. John Saxon, who plays Rhymes with Vader. Sador, I'm sorry, I couldn't, I couldn't not get the Star Wars <laughs> reference enough. in there. I, I want to hear your thoughts on on John Saxon before I, I I diatribe. It's a very inconsistent performance, but I think because it was directed scene 
for scene because there's even that scene with a joke in it where it's like what what like don't don't make the bad guy try to make me laugh with the glove joke like it's a, it's a visual gag i thought it's it's not that he was inconsistent but like i said it was shot like oh in this scene you're this and in this scene you're that so like it's just i'm blaming the director but he did exactly every scene as he was told to I mean, it wasn't an Enter the Dragon performance, and it wasn't Nancy's father performance. It's John Saxon just being John Saxon, just doing what he's told. The reason why movies like Star Wars succeed, aside from like all the production value that goes into it, and you know, just John Williams, is the villain is so good. You know, Darth Vader is an iconic villain the reason why transformers the movie is a better movie than gi joe the movie is because megatron is a better villain than cobra la you know serpentor serpentor i mean unicron don't get me wrong i like cobra commander but yeah no and and there's the thing too like gi joe the rise of cobra you know you did destro and cobra commander dirty in those films like seriously but that, that that's that's for a diatribe for another day. And then Doctor Hustro. <laughs> but the, the problem too is that Sador isn't I mean, yes, he's villainous, but it's very run of the mill, not necessarily Saturday morning cartoon, but very much a you know, that low budget TV kind of Stephen J. Cannell production kind of villain. I'm the bad guy, and here is my menacing tone. Yeah, I mean, it's just... Yeah, and then Hannibal and the rest of the A-team are going to, you know, get him arrested and then collect on their, their, their contract. Yeah, the but... The show. No, he's, gotta, he's not going to live forever. He just wants to live forever. Right. Who wants to live forever? Oh, no, we've, got, we've gone full Highlander now. There can only be one. <laughs> I'm sorry, there can be only one. Uh. See, see, there's a slight difference. There's a slight difference. Oh, I, I know, I know. on that one, right? Uh, so. I know. <laughs> Lynn Carlin as the voice of the computer, Nell. Um, so basically C-3PO and R2-D2 kind of rolled into one. How was the voice of, of the computer for you? She was fine. I thought she was a lot of fun. She's she's spunky. I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask you, because I know... You know, obviously, as a musician, sound plays an important role to you when you when you watch and listen to something. Was Nell's voice too clean for you for this? No, not at all. I I, I just sounded. Is is that going to be our uh, constructive criticism of Nell? We're not going to talk about the two glaringly obvious things about Nell. Oh, dear God. <laughs> okay, okay. Since you went... I wasn't going to bring it up, but since you went there... I mean, who's who's winning in this battle? St. X-Men or Nell? Because ship's got tits. Like, I'm sorry, the ship has boobs. It lies down and rests on its ship boobs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, clearly this ship was designed with the intention that... The, the ship is a she. There's zero question about that. And Nell, Nell as the computer voice, sassy as hell, flying around space with her tits out. You can't not see it. And once you watch it and you, and you hear that voice, you go, well, sh-. 
Um, I think there's enough of a radio filter on it to not make it sound too clean. Because, I mean, like, I don't want too much of a robot filter because the androids on Hephaestus' ship already had that. Mm. So if and- Nell had that, it would just, it, it it wouldn't be as unique. So there's that tiny bit of radio filter, but not too much to make it overbearing. So we know she's not an android. So here's the android voice filter thing, and here's the ship. Yeah, so I could speak like this thing. Mm. Uh, at, least, at least it's not as as sultry as uh, the voice of Friday, the 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 second AI for for Tony Stark in the Avengers films. I will say though, I'm I'm glad you brought up Spaceballs earlier because yes, this film came out first, but I feel like Lynn Carlin's portrayal of Nell kind of inferred the sassiness towards Joan Rivers and her droid in Spaceballs a little bit. Maybe, but I mean, Joan Rivers, I think that role was written for her because she was always like that to begin with anyway. Mm. But I think... I'm going to get... Uh, your, your audience is going to hate me for this, but I'm going to tell you right now. We, we spent about five minutes talking about GoBots on on this episode. They, they don't hate us already. There, there's no saving them. We also sang the theme from Midnight Madness. Yeah, yeah. everyone's tuned out by now, so we're good. Yeah, I mean, like, and since we're talking about Nell, I mean, look <laughs> between the two giant melons. <laughs> Hug me. Oh, man, oh, man. Um, I think that Battle Beyond the Stars, production-wise, looks better than Spaceballs. I think the ships look better. I think the camera work looks better. I think the miniatures look better, and I think the sets look better. Well, I mean, the fact that the fact that Lone Star ship was just a, a Winnebago, you kind of got away with that. And yes, when James Cameron is your art director, it's it's going to look damn good. I know. Before we get to our our MVP, too, I'm I'm just gonna let you because because you are Sean Faust. I am. I'm going to let you. Wax philosophic about the James Horner score in this. Uh, this is his second score. And you can hear where he's going to go with it because it wasn't such a huge movie and it wasn't such... A, well, first of all, are, are we talking about the score for Space Raiders or what, what's that other one with Bo Svensson? Because Roger Corman used this score a lot and Horner got screwed over a ton. Uh, Secrets of the Lost Kingdom, I think it was called. I don't remember. Whatever the hell it's called. And I um, think it was actually used in the unreleased Roger Corman Fantastic Four movie as well. Some of it, but not all of it. There was actually uh, an, uh, that had an original score as well, which I was loving that theme. I love the theme from the Roger Corman Fantastic Four. But James Horner, you can hear some of where he's going to go with Star Trek Two, but you hear a lot of Krull in it too. But James mm. Horner knew like to borrow from himself. And I think the only time he ever borrowed from himself where it was blatant was by Centennial Man, where he kind of played with the melody from Braveheart. It's like, dude, people saw Braveheart. They're going to like be like, who the hell was ripping off Braveheart? But... This score for Battle Beyond the Stars is everything it had to be. It had the Western feel to it. It had the sci-fi feel to it. It had tension. It had romance. It just had everything. Every scene was just appropriate. And he hadn't gone to that very I'm bombastic too yet. So it was just like a very honest James Horner paying homage to John Williams, 
to Jerry Goldsmith, uh, to Corn Gold, to everybody of the past, that it's it's a nice it's a nice introduction to this guy's huge body of work. You mentioned it earlier on in the show that the pacing of this film is a little off, and there is a lot of people sitting down in ships just talking to each other and little less action. And I get that you're dealing with the film with $2 million budget and it doesn't take too much to have people, you know, you know, lean back in their, in their lazy boy, you know, spaceship chair and just talk that they're, they're, their way through things and maybe shake the camera a little bit. If you're feeling adventurous, does the pacing of this film take away from what could have been? No, it's just there are moments where it's like it's gone on too long because you want to show what you've done. Um, And the first scene that comes to mind is when they're using the tones to create the trenches. The trenches forming just takes too long to happen. And it just didn't, it's like, okay, I got the point. Oh, there's more trenches. All right, cool. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, all right. Oh, oh, so we're still getting the trenches. It's amazing how deep those trenches went, too. I guess, you know, once they were all walking through there, we had to know how long it took. Mm-hmm. I, w- I will give this movie credit, too, for, you know, creating some, some at least some interesting alien races. You know, because you had Nestor, which was like the, the group consciousness race where they think with one hive mind and, you know, work in teams of five because it takes four to run the ship and one guy's a backup. You know, the Kelvin, which were a race of aliens that basically emit heat the entire time. Get it? They're called the Kelvin. Um, like, there's a lot of decent world building in this. I wonder, and and I haven't done any research into this, so if, if it already exists, just just tell me to shut up and do some research, and that's okay. I would be curious if anyone had you know ever thought about picking up this property and turning it into like a comic book series. Like I don't I don't think this is you know TV series worthy, but I think it's definitely worth a comic book at least. There was a comic book. There was a comic book? Uh, not long ago, actually. I think it was in the 2010s. But I think I... it was just based on the movie. Oh, okay. So it wasn't like a series series. I think it was like a few issues. Oh, it's called Battle Amongst the Stars. And it's it's about Zed and um, uh, Nell. See, I should have just scrolled down the Wikipedia page and, and read it myself. Now I'm, I'm curious because it does. There is some good world building in this. And that's the thing, like, the thought literally came to me like, oh, I could see this as a comic book. Clearly someone else had the same idea. But when you think Roger Corman films, you don't necessarily think of a decent world building backstory to a lot of these characters. So I now ask you, given the production value in this film, given the you know, the decent A-list caliber actors that they had in this with George Papard and Robert Vaughn, you know, and Richard, like it's a good cast. Does it even feel like a Roger Corman film? No. And I was thinking that earlier today when I was watching it. I was kind of like, man, this is like the most work that's ever been put into a Roger Corman production. This this has value. You can see it on the screen. I mean, you do see some Roger Corman stereotypes. You you do see ships turning. It's the same shot. just And you see it 50 times throughout the movie. Fine, but it's still, yeah, this is, 
It's the least Roger Cormany Roger Corman film. All right, you know what's coming now, Sean, because you know you, you've been here before. Mm-hmm. Who is your MVP of Battle Beyond the Stars? Ah, uh, this is a tough one. This is a tough one. Now I'm sure because I'm May and we've known each other long enough, you think that I'm going to go with James Horner because James Horner. But Cameron's look on this film is this is all James Cameron. So the look of the ships, the 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 visuals all around, like this is gorgeous. It's a gorgeous looking movie for its budget, for its time. And this is like the first thing Cameron did or one of the first things he did. I think Humanoids from the Deep or something, some kind of crazy sequel or something. But like, it's a tough choice. <sighs> Man, and I'm not going to go with the shrink from Terminator. And I'm going to I'm going to spend 20 minutes talking about who it's not going to be. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to be Michael J. Fox in Midnight Madness when he was just Michael Fox, because um, that's not a good performance, and he's not in this, so it wouldn't be him anyway. No, you know who it's not. I'll tell you who it's not. It's not Bill Paxton because I just didn't. Like, I know he built the stuff, but, like, I don't know exactly which things he built, so I can't give it to Bill Paxton. I would love to. I really would. I'd like to give it to Gail Hurd for, like, giving herself a middle name. But at the end of the day, if you assume James Horner, you did assume correctly. I knew it. Of course. For me, the MVP, and I, I completely agree with you, on James Horner and, and James Cameron and the work that they did. I mean, Nell's boobs were pristine, so the the model work was good. <laughs> but for me, it's Robert Vaughn. He understood the assignment. He understood Gelt. Like, he, this was, he was tailor-made for this. Well, he played him already. Well, so he had practice. Right, you know, Exactly. Was, you know, workshopped it in the Magnificent Seven and then brought it to Battle <laughs> Beyond the Stars, apparently. But the thing is, here was the, the one true character that had the most depth to him and made the most sense. And I think had we had that backstory between Zed and Shad, I would have thought more of Shad. But Gelt delivered everything in a short amount of time, and that's because Robert Vaughn was so damn good. Sean, thank you so much for bringing this film and you know, so, somehow getting us to talk about GoBots too. You know that's going to happen, right? Uh, I didn't. I call not it. You did call not it. So now you've got a better chance of me watching GI Joe the movie. Not it. <laughs> you've got a better chance of me watching Revenge of the Fallen. Not. It. He's <laughs> gonna start like stamping it. Not, not you. No erases. I'm, like, I'm on this whole list of like, no, it's not this one, and no, it's not that one. I'm, it's definitely I'm not an email list. These are the films that I will not be talking about on your show. <laughs> but before you send that email, let our listeners know where they can find you out there on the internet and where they can find your music as well. Well, SeanFaustMusic.com is an okay place to start. It doesn't have a lot there. What you might want to do is go to Linktree. And then uh, Sean Faust Music, that'll link you to everything that I'm actively on or sometimes on. Because sometimes I go on Instagram, most of the time I don't. Uh, Of course, buying my music, the very top link you're going to find is for Gin Asylum. 
because I'm still on that crusade, one would call it, because I saw the book behind your sign. I thought of the word crusade, (laughs) and it was not the Bible for the record. But I'm on this crusade for one million sales, not streams, not illegal downloads, my friends, no, but sales of my song, Genocidalum, because with that, I could get myself a nice cushion so I can help all the feral animals out there, some animal shelters, some stray kittens. What are stray cats? Or, or how about, you know, what are these these feral cat shelters that are just 100% volunteer run? They need stuff. All animal shelters need stuff. I know one that could definitely use a new washing machine that, or anything that's going to help the cats or help the people that help the cats or help people that just, you know, they just got hit with a really hard bill. One million sales of my song, Gin Asylum. Sales. It's really the word. Don't stream it. Buy it. Because according to Weird Al Yankovic, artists don't make a lot of money on stream. So definitely go buy a copy of the song and help out where you can. Sean, thank you so much. You know the seat is always there. It's waiting for you for GoBots. No matter no matter what that email says, it's going to be waiting for you. you I cannot that. wait to turn my hat backwards and do over the top, <laughs> baby. <laughs> and to you, our listeners, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Now, you guys know the drill. If there is a movie out there that you think is unfairly maligned or is just so bad that there is no way beyond the stars that we can find anything good to say about it hit us up on social media at not that badcast or go to our website at not that badcast.com and while you're there make sure you check out all of our other shows including our brand new show that's coming out every other week on there can only be one's podcast channel spin shuffle skip until next time he's sean i'm jay you guys are awesome this is it's not that bad a proud member of the pantheon podcast network Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.